So as we continue to look at the books of the Bible that most Christians, sad to say, don't know anything about, tonight we're going to be in the book of Micah. Uh, so your note page already says this, but I'm just going to tell you, Micah was from a town uh, called Morasheth in Judah, not so far from Nazareth actually, but right on the, on the uh, border with, Philist with uh, the Philistines, which is kind of a treacherous place to live. Uh, so he probably saw his own village uh, in danger several times, maybe even change hands, national hands a few times. Um, he lived and prophesied during the reign of two of Judah's, uh, one of their best kings ever, Hezekiah, and one of their worst, Ahaz. And that means he was alive and prophesying at the same time as Isaiah. There's no record of those two meeting or any interaction between them. But Jeremiah mentions Micah in Jeremiah chapter 26. You can look it up. It's an interesting passage in which he talks about Micah prophesying Judah's destruction and says, you know, why are you picking on me when Micah said even worse about Judah and, and you didn't punish him? So what is the book of Micah about? Uh, Scholars call, some scholars call Micah the conscience of Israel or the Amos of the southern kingdom. Remember, Amos was a farmer, a shepherd, who was called by God out of the sheep field to go on up to Israel. I always picture uh, a guy in overalls walking into, uh, you know, Saks Fifth Avenue or whatever uh, with everybody in their good clothes. And he goes up there and preaches judgment for several months and then he disappears. Micah had a similar ministry, although much longer, except his ministry was to the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, but similar to Amos, a lot of his emphasis is on you have to treat the little person well. You have to be kind to those who have less. The, the way a nation treats those who are on the bottom rung is, is going to determine the, the future of that nation and how God sees that nation. We think of we think of, uh, when we think of the moral downfall of a country, we often think of issues like sexuality and, and corruption. And yes, God cares about those too. But when you look at the prophets, you see God cares every bit as much. And there's even more information in scripture about how we treat those who are poor, how we treat those who have no power, how we treat those who are overlooked. And so this was part of Micah's, a big part of Micah's emphasis. During his lifetime, he saw the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, and just wipe it out. The ten tribes of Israel lost to history, and only the two in the south left behind. And then that southern, that the, those Assyrians came, some of you know this, to the very gates of Jerusalem and laid siege to the great city. And this, this is all in the book of Isaiah in great detail. And it looked like Judah was going to fall, but God delivered the delivered the Judahites from the Assyrians with a miracle. They went to bed one night, and the next morning, 185,000 enemy soldiers were dead. And so they, the Assyrians went home, and that was the end of that. But Micah wants the people to know they aren't out of the woods yet. So that's the framework of this story. And we start with chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Interesting, that term high places. If you read the Old Testament very much, you've heard that term. And sometimes, like here, it could just refer to places that are high up on a mountain. But often when, it, when the term high places is used in the Old Testament, it refers to a very specific thing the Israelites would do. 
They would have their temple to the Lord, right? And they would worship Him in Jerusalem. But then they'd have, way up in a mountain somewhere, they'd have a shrine to Baal or to Ashtoreth or some other pagan god. Now, why up on high? Well, partially because they thought the gods reigned in the mountains, but partially because they knew, I'm not supposed to be doing this. So I'm going someplace where nobody can see me, where I get down on my hands and knees before this statue of Baal or before this, uh, you know, whatever they had representing their false god. Uh, so the high places, you know, when you, re when you read the books of Kings and Chronicles, it will say, so-and-so was a good king, but he didn't wipe out the high places. You, re you remember some of those when you read those books? And some of you are going, I don't read those books. So, uh, but when you do, that's what you see, and that's what it's talking about. So maybe that's what it's talking about here. God comes down and tramples on the high places. But either way, he's talking about God showing up. That's basically the day of the Lord. Verse 4. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of Israel, of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? So what is Samaria? Samaria at that time was the capital of the northern kingdom. So Micah right here is writing while the northern kingdom still exists. Part of this book was written before that invasion happened and the, and the northern kingdom was destroyed. Then he says, and what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? So both kingdoms are in view here. And he actually calls Jerusalem a high place, which is a shocking thing to say. He's saying you're, you're, the temple of the Lord has just become yet another high place, a place where you don't go to worship me. You're, you're worshiping some God of your own making. So what this tells us is right from the start, Micah is speaking to both kingdoms, and Micah is preaching judgment. Now, why is God doing this? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. You get a picture of people lying in bed, and they can't even sleep at night because they can't wait to wake up in the morning and do some more evil deeds. But what kind of evil deeds is he talking about? When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Now, let's just enter the realm of, of politics for a minute. We all know that there's no just way to make everybody have the same amount. There will always be some who have more and some who have less. And that's not necessarily bad. Some people, I mean, that's just the way life goes. Some people work hard and that's why they get ahead and some people, they inherit it. But either way, either way, that's not necessarily an unjust thing. The problem comes when the people who have more use their power to oppress those who have less. That's where the problem is. And so what happens is, for instance, and this isn't, a, this isn't there's not a specific example, but he talks about coveting fields and season. Well, how, how can that happen? Well, uh, in that in that world, if you had money, you could control the courts, the, the courts being, being the, the city gates. So what, what you would do is you would say, you know, I really like that piece of land that uh, Ishmael lives on. And, you know, Ishmael's all he's got is that little piece of land that he and his house, he and his family live on. Just that one piece of land, maybe a donkey, something like that. Boy, I like his piece of land. I'd really like to have that. Well, all I got to do is just go down to the city gates and tell them, I loaned him some money a few years ago and he hadn't paid me back. And he can't prove he didn't pay me back. 
Or maybe, maybe I did actually owe him, pay him, uh, loan him money, and I'm going to jack up the interest rate so that I know he can't pay it. Either way, I'm going to make sure that the elders at the gates who are on my side, because I have money and I can make their lives miserable or happy, depending on what on my own whim, they're going to give me what I want. They're going to take that land away from Ishmael and give it to me. And this sort of thing was happening in Israel, all across Israel and Judah. These kinds of injustices were happening. And God looks down from heaven and says, you can't expect me to continue to protect you if you're going to act like that, if you're going to treat those who have less in the way that you do. So there's another reason behind his the, the coming wrath of God. And we look at verse six. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Now that's a confusing statement. The, the translators have tried to make it clear by, by using the quotation marks. But what it's saying is that the prophets of God at that time, the, not the prophets of God, the prophets of the nation weren't preaching the truth. They were saying, they were preaching, don't preach what, don't preach the truth to me. Don't preach the truth to me. I don't want to hear it. You can't say these things. So Micah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and other prophets of God would go around saying, hey, there, there are problems in our country. We need to get them right. And the people and the prophets they enjoyed would say, it's all fake news. Don't listen to it. We don't, we don't, need, to, we don't need to listen. They, they don't know what they're talking about. It was just a, you know... It should go without saying. But just because you don't like something doesn't mean it's not true. And the people of God didn't want to hear the truth. And that's a terrible thing. Now in verse 11, he says something that sounds like satire. He says, If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. And it sounds funny to us. But what he's saying is they want prophets who tell them, don't worry, God's going to pour out all the wine and beer you want. He's going to give you abundance. That's what God has in mind for you is abundance. All that you could possibly want. When the opposite is in in line for Judah. Now, does that bring about short-term success for that kind of prophet? Of course. Everybody loves the preacher who tells them what they want to hear, who tells them the things that make them feel good about themselves. But we don't like the preacher who says, you're on the wrong track, you need to repent. The only time you like that kind of preacher is when you're truly dedicated to the Lord. When you're dedicated to the Lord, you hear that, and you you know because the Spirit of God gives you the ring of truth, and you go to that preacher and you say, thank you, I needed to hear that. I needed someone who loved me enough to tell me the truth so I could repent and stay uh, in, in, in the middle of God's will. But that's not where the people of God were. So this is why judgment is coming. But look what happens next in verse 12. So that's right after verse 11. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So just without warning, he all of a sudden turns toward hope. Don't worry because I'm going to gather all my people together. And I love this image. Like sheep in a fold, a noisy multitude of men. It almost sounds like he's picturing a bunch of human beings in a sheep pen, just bad, just calling out. But, but he's trying to help us see, I'm going to get my people back together. 
This destruction is not going to be final. And then he says, he who opens the breach goes up before them. So he pictures somebody. And of course, the, the people of Israel and Judah were thinking, oh, he's talking about our king. Our king is going to come and open the gate of that sheepfold and lead us out. Like it says in Psalm 23, you and I look at that and say, oh, he's talking about Jesus. He who opens the breach, he who gets, who we've gathered the people of God, now I'm going to lead them. But he's promising a, a hope. And, and that's, that's going to be the template of the whole book of Micah. He just toggles back and forth between judgment, 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 and oh, here's a little bit of hope. And then more judgment, more judgment. Okay, let me tell you what's going to happen after that. So there's good news and bad news. And that's true of a lot of the prophets, but certainly of Micah. Because look what, look what happens. The very next verse, chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and eat their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. So he goes, it's just right back to judgment. And that's pretty graphic stuff, isn't it? I don't know any preacher today who would accuse uh, anybody of eating the people of God and flaying off their skin and chopping them up and putting them in a pot. Micah is using shocking language for a reason because he's talking about the leaders of Israel. And you ask, well, okay, is he talking about the spiritual leaders, the priests and the prophets, or is he talking about the political leaders, the kings and the princes? I think both. Because in a nation like Israel and, and a nation like Judah, where you know, uniquely of all nations in the history of the world, they had a covenant with God, there was really no difference. All of them were working for the same purpose. Religious and political leaders were all trying, or supposed to be trying, to lead the people to follow the Lord who was going to make the way for them in the desert, who was going to make them uh, a chosen people, and they're not doing it. They're, they're destroying the people of God. And so he uses these graphic terms, these shocking terms, to get people's attention and say, judgment is coming because your leaders are betraying you. Now let's skip to chapter 4, because then we go to hope. And this is one of the most beautiful things in the entire Bible. Chapter 4, verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord, the mountain of the house of the Lord, shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that, we may, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths." For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So what is he talking about here? The people who read this at first, all they knew is he's promising us there will be a day when we won't just have peace from our enemies and forgiveness for our sins, but we'll actually finally fulfill our purpose and we'll be a nation that draws other nations in. Remember, that was the promise of God to Abraham. Through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. He said to Isaiah, uh, you, my people, will be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. And that just really hadn't happened for the most part. You see, you see stories of it happening. You see people like Ruth. You see people like Rahab uh, coming into the faith, coming to know God. Uh, you see names like, you know, remember the husband of Bathsheba was named Uriah the Hittite. Now, how did a Hittite become one of David's mighty men? Well, he was drawn to the Lord, uh, the God of Israel. 
So it happened, but it didn't happen often enough. But someday it's going to happen. And they had no idea when that, was gonna, that promise would be fulfilled. It just had to give them encouragement to know our people are not going to end. So think about it. Imagine the United States was divided in half and, and you know, there was an East, East America and a West America or something like that. And we're, we're living like that for about 150 years. And then all of a sudden we're living in West America and we look across the Mississippi and East America has vanished because some big nation has gobbled them up. We'd start to feel pretty insecure. And that, that was the condition of the people of Judah. But now Micah is saying, okay, you're going to get the same treatment, but unlike those people from the north, you're not going to disappear. Yes, you'll be carried away. Yes, you'll go through tar- hard times, but you will continue to be a people and God has a future for you. And that's good news. Now for us, we look at this and we know these, these promises haven't yet been fulfilled. So we know what that means. We know that it's coming. When the Messiah is the king, when the, when the earth is renewed, when, the, when this life is over and Jesus is king over all the earth, it's talking about that. It's talking about the nations of the world. All, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what it's talking about. And so we get excited about this promise. You think there's not prophecies about heaven and about the new earth in the Old Testament? You got another thing coming. This is one right here. Verse 3. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now that that vision or that image of beating swords into plowshares, that's something that you can find in several of the Old Testament prophets. And what it's referring to is that's the day when you know there's peace. I mean, we're all proud of... uh, Members of our family and some of you yourselves who've fought and defended our nation have served overseas uh, and people we know, you know, our kids, our grandkids, our cousins, our siblings who are right now serving uh, overseas in various places. We're proud of them and we pray for them. And yet, wouldn't it be great to live in a world where they didn't have to do that? Wouldn't it be great to live in a world where people with that kind of talent and that kind of devotion, that kind of dedication could channel that towards other things? And there was no war. And someday we'll live in that kind of world. And there won't be any gold star families anymore. Nobody will have to say, uh, well, today uh, another uh, you know, three troops were, were killed when their helicopter was shot down. Or another uh, a man stepped on an IED and, and was lost. So we won't hear those kinds of things anymore because there will be peace. And verse 4 says, But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. That image of uh, sitting under his vine and his fig tree, that was an image that the first president of our country really loved. In his letters, George Washington used that term, his, his own vine and fig tree, over 50 times. So if you read biographies of George Washington, you know, you, these scholarly biographies that are not religious in nature at all, you'll find them explaining, okay, this is an image from the prophet of Micah from the Old Testament. And then they have to go into detail about what it means. And what it means is it me- it's an image of provision and plenty. It's like saying in that world, everybody will have two cars in their garage. In that world, everybody will have a refrigerator full of food. To have your own vine and your own fig tree means you've got something to eat and you've got something to make wine with. So you've, you've got plenty. It's an image of plenty. In a world where there was the super rich and the, and the very, very poor and very few in between, it's talking about a world where everybody has enough. And that's what's coming. 
And then finally in verse 5, he says, For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So, yeah, now we live in a world where people pursue all these different gods, but someday we'll live in a world where we follow the Lord himself. And the, the, the really noteworthy thing about that isn't just the idea of every knee bowing and every tongue confessing. It's the idea that, you know, for all the, all the ingenuity and all the hard work and all the technology that we are able to concoct, what ultimately brings about world peace, what ultimately brings about uh, enough food for everybody, what ultimately brings about a world that is the way it ought to be is not anything political or military or technological. It's the Lord God. It's when everybody finally turns to the Lord. When we live in a world where everybody worships Jesus as king, then we will live in a world where things are finally the way they should have been all along. And I hope that gets you excited because it's not a daydream and it's not a false promise. It's coming. It's coming for every single one of us. And that's our future. And that's, there's nothing in this world that can take that away from us. Yeah. Amen. So Micah 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore she, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. We know that verse, or we know at least verse 2, because it's quoted at Christmas time. Remember uh, when the wise men came, the magi from the east, and they showed up in Jerusalem. And they said, okay, where is he who is born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. And Herod's sitting there on his throne going, what do I look like? The, the stable boy? I'm the king of the Jews. But he knows. Herod was smart enough to know that there was a coming Messiah. He was not a Jew himself. He was not certainly not a worshiper of the Lord. But he knew enough of Scripture. He knew that there was a coming Messiah, and his ears perked up, and he thought, oh, they think he's come. Maybe he has. One of the things you learn about Herod when you, when you read some of the people who lived during his days is he was extremely paranoid. I mean, he was probably always that way, but as his life went on and he, begot, he, he became sicker and sicker, uh, he, he started killing everybody around him, killed the wife that he loved, and just worshipped the ground she walked on, but decided all of a sudden, oh, she's plotting against me. Had her put to death. Killed his own sons. Killed anybody who ever got close to him. Because he just, if you got close to him, he'd start to suspect you. Well, now he hears that the Messiah might be born. So what is his immediate thought? Even though he's a sick old man, and you're talking about a baby, well, I can't have that. What if he grows up before I'm dead and takes my place? And so he goes down to the, to the, scribes and says, now where does the scripture say that the Messiah is to be born? And the scribes didn't like Herod. Again, he wasn't a real Jew. Uh, he wasn't a real uh, Yahweh follower. And so they must have probably laughed at themselves and said, anybody knows the answer to this? Prophet Micah said it's in Bethlehem. Now of all places, Bethlehem. Bethlehem is not that far from Jerusalem, but it's, a, it's miles away in terms of, of uh, conditions in terms of the, the different states of the cities. Jerusalem is still today just a magnificent city. 
If you ever get a chance to go, I, I mean, if there's any city on earth I'd like to spend a weekend, it's that one. Bethlehem is a very small town, even today. Uh, and back then it was even smaller. Micah describes it as too little to be among the clans of Judah. The word little he uses doesn't just mean small in terms of population, because there were smaller towns. It's a word that means insignificant. It's a word that means minor. Now, that's not to say nothing ever happened in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was the hometown of David. It was also uh, the hometown of, of uh, a certain name, lady named Naomi. So Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, that story takes place in Bethlehem. But it's not the kind of place you would pick for the Messiah to be born. And, and so it had to have surprised everyone when Micah prophesied this. Because by the time, by the time uh, Jesus is born, everyone knows that prophecy of Micah 700 years earlier means that's going to be the hometown of the Messiah. Now, just for a little information that may or may not help you, if you go to Bethlehem today, a couple of interesting things you'll see. It's in the Palestinian area, so of course you have to go through that big wall between uh, Israeli territory and Palestinian territory. The, the first time I ever went, we, we went on a bus, and so as we went to that wall, we saw the Palestinian men lined up on foot for you know block after block, waiting to cross so they can get into Jerusalem and go to work. So much hostility. Uh, and inside the Palestinian territory, of course, they're much poorer than the Israelis, and so the, the town doesn't look very good. It's small. It's not well kept. Uh, there's, there's a couple of, you know, there's some good hotels and restaurants because that's their livelihood is that tourism. But the houses don't look like anything. But up on, high up on a hill, there's this lavish, ruin, lavish ruins of a palace. I mean, there's, there, there's enough left of them that you can tell this was quite a place. It actually had a swimming pool and bathhouse and lots of other things that, you know, rich men of, of Roman extraction liked. Well, that was, that was one of Herod's palaces. It was called the Herodium. Now, he wasn't there when Jesus was born. We know he was in Jerusalem. But think about that for a minute. Here's Jesus born in a stable in tiny Bethlehem. And up there on the hill is this lavish palace. Isn't that a picture of the way of the world and, and the kind of uh, life that Jesus was born into. He could have been born in a place like that place up on the mountain, up on the hill, but he chose to be born in the stable. And, and the world hasn't changed all that, much since then, all that much since then. All right, let's look at chapter six. I'm skipping over a lot of judgment, y'all. Okay, you're going to thank me, I'm sure. But you, gotta, you need to hear a little bit more. So chapter six, verse three. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? This is God speaking. This is Micah speaking directly the words of God. How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent, you before, I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So you can sum all those three verses up by saying, look at all I've done for you. Look how many times I have spared you, have delivered you. Look at all the ways I've blessed you. So he mentions two things specifically. I rescued you from slavery. I brought you into the land of Egypt. I mean, I'm sorry, the land of, uh, of Canaan and gave you this promise that gave you a nation free of charge. And then he talks about Balak and Balaam. You remember the story of Balaam. It's, it's one of the more entertaining ones, the one where the donkey talks. 
And that's a story where you had one of the most powerful pagan prophets in the land, and you had a king with enough money to pay that prophet to curse Israel, and God wouldn't let it happen. And so God says, look at all I've done for you. I've protected you. I've provided for you. I've given you godly leadership down through the years. I've caused your enemies' curses to rebound upon them. What more could I do? And it makes you, it ought to make you and I ask the question, when we are rebellious against God, when we go days and days without even opening his word, when we know that we've got sin in our hearts and we just refuse to repent, God could say the same to us. Look at all I've done for you, and this is the way you treat me. It's a very poignant thing that God is saying here. But immediately from there, he comes to the most famous passage in the book of Micah, verse 6. So now he's, he's no longer speaking for God. Now he's speaking for us. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I, give the, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So you see the progression there. Should I come and, and offer a calf to him? Well, yeah, that's what the Bible says. That's how the Israelites worship. Shall I give him 10,000 rivers of oil? Well, that seems a little excessive, but, you know, points to you for your zeal and your devotion. I'm sure God will be impressed. Shall I offer him the, my firstborn? Well, no, God doesn't want child sacrifice. But in the ancient world, that's the way people thought. If you really want to get the God's attention, boy, sacrifice one of your children, and they're guaranteed to answer. So what's God's response to all this? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Very, very easy to remember. Beautifully spoken. This is what it means to follow the Lord. This is what it means to live a godly life. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. What does that mean? Do justice, you could sum it up by saying treat others the way you would want to be treated. That's the golden rule. Justice is all about treating people the way they should be treated. It's all about taking care of uh, people. You know, if, it's not just about uh, being kind to others. It's about looking at someone, the person everybody else ignores, and saying, okay, if I was that person, what would I want someone to do for me? And, and being the person who does it. And that makes you unpopular sometimes. Because people say, uh, you know, why are you always wasting your time with these loser cases? But that's my calling. As, as a child of God, to, to do justice and, and to love kindness. Uh, remember, I, I've talked before about uh, kindness being the, the different, uh, something different than niceness. We, we love to be nice because nice people are popular. Uh, nice people don't get into trouble. They don't make people upset. Kindness is different. Kindness uh, is not worried about our reputation. Kindness is worried about uh, what the other person needs. It's very similar to justice it's very similar in that it, it involves compassion. And then walk humbly before your God. That just means to submit to him in every area of your life. To walk humbly before someone is the opposite of the way a lot of us re uh, relate to God. We tend to have kind of a transactional relationship with God, like God is a business consultant. And we brought, we brought the Lord into our lives to help us achieve our goals. Or a business partner, you know, me and God together, we're going to accomplish all kinds of things. But, you know, he's the Lord and you're not. We should always remember our place before him. Yes, he's a loving father. 
and he thinks the world of you, but never forget, never forget he's him and you're not. I, I, one of my favorite teachers ever was a guy named Jack McGorman. Some of you might know that name. He was a professor of New Testament at Southwestern Seminary for many, many years. Uh, and he was from Nova Scotia, which I never realized until I first sat under his teaching that people from Nova Scotia basically means New Scotland. They actually speak, or at least he did, with a Scottish accent, which made him even more entertaining. You could have read the phone book and I would have listened. But he said a lot of memorable things, but one of them was, he said, I've always found that I'm a poor candidate for deity. A poor candidate for deity. And that's a good description for us. We are, we are not divine. And sometimes we act like we are. And that's the root of all sin. Walk humbly before your God. He is our king and we are his people. All right, so let's finish out chapter 7. One more judgment passage. Verse 2. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. What Micah's describing, Micah's a very eloquent writer. He's describing the total breakdown of a society. So this is a nation where you can't count on people in leadership to do what is right. In fact, you can count on the opposite. You're not going to get justice or, or, or integrity from any of your leaders because it's become that kind of nation. We see nations in the world today, and I know we make jokes about our leaders in our country, but some of you have lived in other countries and you've seen you can't get anything done without bribing. Well, that's, fortunately, that's not yet true here, but it is true in some parts of the world. And he's describing that here. Every one of the leaders is out for themselves. They, they don't, they, none of them has integrity. And even your own family, your neighbor turns his back on you. He says, you can't even, you can't even speak the truth to the one who lies in your arms. So your own wife is going to betray you if you say something that she can use against you. Your, your son is going to hate you. Your daughter-in-law is going to turn against you. Your own, the men of your own house will be your worst enemies. That, talk about the breakdown of society when even family bonds don't matter at all. And that's what he's describing. That's what's coming for Israel and Judah. That's a very, very dark thing to behold. But it's their own fault. Remember, the wrath of God is not necessarily God striking with lightning. All the things he's describing are naturally occurring things. And this is not the earth opening up and swallowing people whole. All right? This is not something you look at, look at and go, oh, okay, that's the Lord. That's why Mike is telling him. He's saying, when you see all this happen, you'll know it's because of your sin. This is no different. This is no different than a doctor standing over a guy and saying, I, I know you're upset that you've got this lung cancer, but you've been smoking for 40 years. 
You know, I, I know you're upset that you, you know, you, you wrecked your car and, and now you can't walk, but you know, you, you've been drinking like a fish and getting behind the wheel of a car. What did you think was going to happen? That's exactly what Micah's doing. He's telling people, he's telling the Jews, when this happens, you'll know you brought it on yourselves. God is not unjust. He's the opposite of that. So let's finish on a good note the way Micah does. Verse 18 of chapter 7. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. If there is one abiding theme of the Old Testament, it's that sentence right there. He does not remain retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Everybody thinks the Old Testament is this book of God's wrath, and the New Testament's this book of God's grace, but you'll find grace all over the Old Testament. You'll find plenty of wrath in the New. And this is the dominant theme, God's steadfast love. God does not change. It says, verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. Remember that word compassion? It doesn't just mean, oh, you poor soul. It means I'm attached to you. I can't give you up. I will, I will be with you to the end. Your pain is my pain. Your tears are my tears. Your death is my death. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Those are two beautiful images. Our sins are there, and God just steps on them, crushes them. And then he picks up the pieces that are left over and throws them into the water, and they sink to the bottom, and they're gone. And that's a beautiful image of the forgiveness of God. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Isn't it good to know that he delights in steadfast love? That showing us forgiveness is not something God does grudgingly. The way, you know, when one of my kids calls me, right when I'm in the middle of the fourth quarter, you know, Dad, I need you. Okay, I want you to write a book about me someday. I guess I'll, you know. Or like I told you a few, day, a few weeks ago, my daughter had to wake me up in the middle of the night because there was a cockroach in her bedroom. I mean, at two in the morning. And I went up there. I didn't like it. I wasn't happy about it. But I went up there. God is not like that. God delights in showing steadfast love. Aren't you glad that that's the kind of parent he is? that he would rather embrace us than discipline us, that he would rather shower us with blessings than pour out wrath. And if, if you don't believe it just because it says it in the book of Micah, all you got to do is look at the cross. Because there he said, you can have my wrath if you want, but I took it all upon myself. If you want my wrath, then it means going over my dead body. And that is the story of the, of the scriptures. That is the story of the gospel. He went there, Jesus did, not because it was his job. He went there, according to Hebrews 12.1, for the joy set before him. That is the God we serve. And that's so important to remember. All right, let me close this in prayer. Lord God, we thank you that you are who you are. And thank you for this reminder from your word of your character. Lord, of your your righteousness, your refusal to let us uh, get away with things, to refusal to let us be happy in our sin. Lord, you tell us the truth even when we don't want to hear it. Lord, you will punish evil, and that, there's no stopping that. And yet, you delight 
to show us love. And you delight to forgive. And I pray that we would remember that as well, that we would, when we read these books and when we think about the things you've taught us, that we would remember your faithfulness and that we would return faithfulness as well. Forth in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.